thanks for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. And I'm delighted to be with Eamon Delahunt. I've known Eamon's work since he graduated his PhD in 2006. He did a fantastic keynote lecture at Wexford in Ireland for the Irish Society of Chartered Physiotherapists late in 2016. And he's been kind enough to make time for us for this BJSM podcast. Thanks, Eamon. Thank you uh, for the introduction and um, hopefully we can exchange some nice thoughts that will be of value to the listeners today. For sure. So chronic ankle instability is the topic and there's a big burden of that disease and many clinicians are aware of that. Why don't you hit us with the brief highlights of the burden of disease of chronic ankle instability? Well, I think ankle sprains in general are an important issue in sports medicine and sports physiotherapy. And really, to me, there are probably two main reasons for this. Um, Firstly, because of their high prevalence. And secondly, because of the high propensity for the development of persistent residual symptoms following ankle sprain. So we know that ankle sprains are one of the most commonly sustained injuries by individuals who participate in field and court sports. And there are a number of epidemiological studies which support this statement. So from the UEFA injury study, we know the hierarchy of injury prevalence in male professional association football. Hamstring injuries are the most prevalent, followed by knee injuries and then ankle injuries, which have a similar prevalence to hip and groin injuries of around 14%. So actually, in elite male professional association football, ankle injuries could be classified as one of the big four. Also, we know that ankle joint injuries contribute substantially to the total injury burden in NCAA sports. They account for around 25% of all injuries sustained by basketball players of both sexes, and also around 25% of all injuries in women's volleyball. However, despite the high prevalence and incidence of ankle sprains. I guess they are continuously regarded as an innocuous injury that will heal expediently and with minimal treatment. So for example, in Irish emergency departments, the usual care for patients with an acute lateral ankle sprain includes basic advice on applying ice and compression for the week on discharge, and encouragement of weight-bearing activities and walking within pain limits, and early return to activities of daily living. However, it's quite clear that this management approach for acute lateral ankle sprains is really inadequate based on the high risk for the development of long-term symptoms and particularly the subsequent development of chronic ankle instability. So prospective research from our group in UCD uh, published last April has illustrated that up to 40% of individuals with a first ever lateral ankle sprain will develop chronic ankle instability within one year of sustaining their first ever injury. And how does a clinician decide whether it's chronic ankle instability or it's just an acute injury that's taking a while? Chronic ankle instability, I guess, is is an encompassing term uh, used to classify someone who reports persistent residual symptoms and recurrent ankle injuries following a lateral ankle sprain. And there are two key characteristic residual symptoms, which are a feeling of ankle joint instability and giving way of the ankle joint. So a feeling of ankle joint instability really refers to the situation um, whereby an individual feels that their ankle joint is unstable. And this is usually associated with the fear of incurring an acute lateral ankle sprain. 
And this might happen while someone is walking on cobblestones or when running along a forest trail or during a tennis match when they're ma making repeated lateral shuffle movements as part of a, a base court rally. The other key characteristic feature is giving way of the ankle joint, and this really refers to the regular occurrence of uncontrolled or unpredictable episodes of excessive inversion of the rear foot, but which does not result in an acute lateral ankle sprain. So there's no pain, there's no bruising, or there's no swelling. So we're looking to help clinicians treat these patients in the clinic. Can you take us through a scenario of a patient where, that you've treated? So when we look at uh, some of the, the published literature, um, there are a number of mechanisms of injury that are, are commonly described. Um, so for example, in a soccer player, um, the player might sustain a tackle to the inside of the lower border of the shin, just above the medial malleolus, and this causes a forced inversion of the ankle and foot. So given that type of injury mechanism, um, there will be three things that mainly come to mind, and they will be, um, in the immediate clinical assessment, they will be the application of the modified auto ankle rules, um, an assessment of lateral ligament laxity, and even though the mechanism of injury isn't in keeping with syndesmosis injury, it would still be worth including an assessment to determine the likelihood of a high ankle sprain. And then after competing or completing these assessments, I would then concentrate on the assessment of other mechanical insufficiencies as well as functional insufficiencies and utilize the assessment findings to guide um, my treatment and rehabilitation. So let's make that really concrete. Let's say that you have seen a football player like this and you've ruled out the high ankle sprain, the syndesmosis injury, which we'll get back to. What are the specific assessments that you do? Okay, so I'll talk through maybe the application of the modified Ottawa ankle rules and then also the assessment of uh, lateral ligament laxity. They would be two key components of any clinical examination to look at that type of, of injury mechanism. So um, the modified Ottawa ankle rules are really used to determine whether a patient warrants x-ray examination of the ankle and foot. And we know that there are four palpation tests and one functional test. So the presence or absence of a patient's known pain and bone tenderness is recorded upon palpation of the navicular, the distal six centimeters of the posterior aspect of the medial malleolus, the base of the fifth metatarsal, and the distal six centimeters of the posterior aspect of the lateral malleolus. And the functional test relates to the patient's weight-bearing status and whether they have the ability to weight-bear for more than four steps. Now we know that the modified auto ankle rules have greater sensitivity than specificity, meaning that they are better at ruling out the possibility of ankle or foot fracture compared to making a positive diagnosis of fracture of the ankle or foot. They also have a negative likelihood ratio, um, a very low negative likelihood ratio of 0.02. So around 10% of people who incur an ankle inversion trauma will fracture their ankle or foot. And this is what we refer to as a pretest probability. 
So if we combine a pretest probability of 10% with the negative likelihood ratio of uh, 0.02, this actually results in a less than 1% chance of fracture of the ankle or foot if all components of the modified Ottawa ankle rules are negative. So from a clinical perspective, it's, it's a really powerful tool. Um, then maybe moving on to the assessment of the integrity of the lateral ligament complex of the ankle. Um, I would perform, uh, and really looking at the anterior talofibular ligament, I, I would use the anterior drawer test. And the sensitivity and specificity of this test are increased if clinical assessment is delayed for up to four days post-injury. So to perform this test, I would have the patient sitting over the edge of the plinth with their legs hanging down freely. And then with one hand, I would stabilize the distal tibia and fibula. And then with the ankle joint in approximately 10 to 20 degrees of plantar flexion, I'd cup around the undersurface and posterior aspect of the talus. And the aim of the test is then to translate the talus forwards in the ankle mortis. Um, a positive test is indicated by the presence of a sulcus sign, uh, just anterior and inferior to the lateral malleolus. And because the test has greater sensitivity than specificity, it is uh, better at ruling out uh, rupture of the anterior talofibular ligament. So they would be the, the two main clinical assessments that I, that I would undertake thinking about that injury mechanism whereby there was a contact just above the medial malleolus causing a forced inversion of, of the foot and ankle. Now I'd like to shine the light on syndesmosis injuries again. You touched on them, but let's just really help the listener who might be wondering, am I missing a syndesmosis injury, i.e. high ankle sprain? Can you highlight that in a minute or two, please? Okay, um, so the mechanism of injury that I described typically wouldn't be that associated with syndesmosis injury. However, it's probably still worth including an assessment of the distal tibiofibular uh, joint and its supporting ligaments, um, mainly because of the contact nature of, of the, the injury that I described. So a research group from the University of Sydney has actually described the diagnostic diagnostic accuracy of, of a commonly used clinical tests for ankle syndesmosis injury. And in their 2015 paper in BJS, BJSM, they described that the most sensitive test was palpation of the anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, with the most specific test being the squeeze test. So, for example, if a sensitive test is positive, so if palpation of the anterior inferior tib-fib ligament uh, recreates the patient's known pain, then it will be necessary to continue assessment using the most specific test, which is the squeeze test. And if the squeeze test was also positive, then the likelihood of syndesmosis injury is increased. And in this instance, medical imaging or investigative arthroscopy would be warranted. And I'm going to ask you to clarify a topic you talked about in Wexford, which was the Hurtle model of mechanical insufficiency. Okay, um, back in 2002, Professor Jay Hurtle from the University of Virginia published a model to outline the mechanical insufficiencies and functional insufficiencies that contribute to the development of chronic ankle instability. So the mechanical insufficiencies include pathological laxity, arthrokinematic restrictions, synovial changes, and degenerative changes, whereas the functional insufficiencies include impaired proprioception, impaired neuromuscular control, impaired postural control or postural balance, and impaired strength. And I think this is a really useful model that can guide clinical assessment, treatment, and rehabilitation. So 
pathological laxity, this is really uh, whereby you have ligamentous laxity. Um, arthrokinematic restrictions really refer to um, deficits in accessory m movement of um, some of the bones around the ankle complex. So in particular, um, a deficit in tailor mobility. Um, synovial changes re refer to whether there's any um, persistent effusion or uh, low-grade eff uh, effusion. And then ge degenerative changes, classical development of osteophytes, any subchondral cysts and the like. And you're in the clinic. Um, how do you use this for your clinical practice? Because I know that's your goal. Okay, so maybe I think from from a clinical perspective, the main functional insufficiencies that we can assess will be pathological laxity and arthrokinematic restrictions. I don't think we can really assess properly from a clinical perspective the presence of synovial changes or degenerative changes without including medical imaging. So. Um, as I alluded to earlier, uh, pathological laxity is primarily determined by a positive anterior drawer test, and this is characterized by the presence of a sulcus sign. So if a patient has a positive anterior drawer test and is thinking of uh, perhaps returning to a field or court sport, then taping or bracing is certainly something worth discussing. So there is evidence from randomized controlled trials support the use of bracing for reducing the prevalence of recurrent sprains. So maybe take, for example, a tennis player. So the high-velocity repetitive lateral shuffling that occurs during a base court rally results in substantial loading to the lateral aspect of the foot and ankle. When we look at video analyses of lateral ankle sprains in tennis, we often see that during the breaking component of a lateral shuffle, the rear foot is often inverted. And we know that an inverted rear foot alters the axis of rotation of the subtalar joint, creating a heightened external inversion moment, and this increases the risk of lateral ankle sprain. Also, one of the mechanical properties of ligaments is hysteresis, and uh, with high-velocity, high-magnitude repetitive loading, such as that which occurs during lateral shuffling, the ligament length limits increase with each repetitive cyclical load, thus resulting in the gradual development of ligamentous laxity. And it's also likely that the proprioceptive acuity of the ligamentous mechanoreceptors is also altered in that situation, which can lead to inaccurate movement patterns and muscle activation profiles. So in this instance, taping or bracing will help as they will reduce the rate of rear foot inversion as well as the magnitude of rear foot inversion. And this is what is referred to as the mechanical effect of taping and bracing. Taping and bracing, uh, I guess, will also likely have a positive psychological effect on the athlete. And previous research that I've undertaken has shown that taping can increase an athlete's feeling of confidence, as well as increasing their perception of ankle joint stability during the performance of dynamic tests. But I guess the final decision regarding the use of taping or bracing needs to be made with the patients uh, or needs to be made by the patients themselves. And in my experience, the biggest factor influencing compliance is comfort. So the choice about types of braces and taping techniques really requires a bit of trial and error. 
so that covers the mechanical insufficiencies. And then what do you do to assess and treat functional insufficiency? So just to recap, um, the functional insufficiencies include impaired proprioception, impaired neuromuscular control, impaired postural control, um, and impaired strength. So I, I guess in order to institute a successful and comprehensive rehabilitation program following acute lateral ankle sprain or in individuals with chronic ankle instability, it is really important to consider all of these. So uh, maybe I'll expand on impaired post postural control a little bit because it's probably one of the ones that people are most, most familiar with. So the assessment of both static and dynamic postural control is very important. And in the early stages following acute lateral ankle sprain, I would use both the tandem stance and single leg stance components of the balance error scoring system as they add a level of objectivity to the assessment. And then for the assessment of dynamic postural stability, I would tend to use the anterior, posterior medial, and posterior lateral reach directions of the star excursion balance test. And um, relatively recently, uh, Dr. Philip Gribble from the University of Kentucky has published guidelines for the administration of the star excursion balance test. And I'd recommend that clinicians really should familiarize themselves with these guidelines. So going back to, to balance deficits or postural stability deficits, um, prospective research for our group in UCD has identified a number of interesting findings that perhaps should be considered from a clinical perspective. We've identified that following acute lateral ankle sprain, postural control has decreased in both the injured and non-injured limbs. Uh, indicating that peripheral musculoskeletal injuries have central manifestations. Also, following lateral ankle sprain, individuals tend to use a hip-dominant strategy of postural control. Uh, they exhibit a freezing of their ankle joint strategy, which is characterized by an inability to explore their base of support during single-leg postural control assessments. And we know that these deficits can last up to and beyond six months following injury. So for rehabilitation following acute lateral ankle sprain, I would always train postural control on both the injured and non-injured sides. And personally, I tend to place a large emphasis on hopping and landing drills. Um, so an easy sequence of progression might include the following. So, in, and this is particularly relevant to the acute phase. So, the patient is standing on the non-injured limb. They then step forward onto the injured limb and maintain balance for a number of seconds. I would try to encourage a soft landing to cushion uh, ground reaction forces, as well as encourage a large amount of flexion to the hip, knee, and ankle. And this ensures that the patient's center of mass remains within their base of support with the aim of minimizing the need to use a hip-dominant strategy of postural control. So a natural progression would be to perform the same task with a more dynamic step forward so that there's a float phase where neither foot is in contact with the ground. This could then be progressed to hopping off and landing on the injured limb. So in all of these instances, it's easy to ma manipulate both the task and the environment. So for example, the task could be manipulated by increasing the distance that the patient has to step or hop, whilst the environment could be manipulated by having uh, the patient step or land onto an unstable surface, 
or respond to some type of external sim- stimulus. Brilliant, Eamon, thank you. And we're getting to the close here. I know you have to get going in Dublin, but patient-rated outcome measures, PROMS, are increasingly used by clinicians, and you're an expert in that. Just in a short summary, what would you suggest clinicians consider in their practices with respect to ankles? Okay, um, so there are a number of patient-reported outcome measures that are certainly worth considering. So self-reported chronic ankle instability can be confirmed uh, using validated ankle instability-specific questionnaires and which have associated cutoffs. So two questionnaires worth considering are the Cumberland Ankle Instability Tool, um, which was developed by researchers in University of Sydney, and a score of less than 24 out of 30 indicates the presence of chronic ankle instability. Also worth considering is the IDFAI, or the Identification of Functional, Functional Ankle Instability Questionnaire, and a score of greater than 11 on this scale indicates the presence of chronic ankle instability. So they can be used successfully to determine whether someone has chronic ankle instability or not. And then really to assess outcomes following treatment, I would recommend using the foot and ankle ability measure. And this has two subscales. It has an activities of daily living subscale and a sport subscale, what we call the FAM ADL or the FAM sport. And the FAM ADL is a 21-item questionnaire. Uh, the maximum score is 84. So the raw score of the patient is converted to a percentage. And the FAM Sport is a 30 or an eight-item questionnaire with a maximum score of 32. And again, the patient score is um, converted to a percentage of uh, maximum total score. Fantastic summary, Eamon. And- Great to get that into a 20-minute podcast when often it's a keynote lecture at a conference and then workshops that you run in association with that. And just before we do leave it, Eamon, you've got a couple of great consensus meetings that you've been involved in and you've organised a scientific conference in Dublin. Can you direct a reader to that resource and potentially appropriate future conference? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. Um, in 2012 in, in Kentucky, um, there was a meeting of the International uh, Ankle Consortium, um, the International Ankle Symposium meeting. And arising from that meeting, the group um, developed a consensus statement regarding um, minimum reporting standards for research um, in the area of chronic ankle instability. So there was a tripartite publication. Um, One of the uh, publishing journals was British Journal of Sports Medicine, and that appears um, in 2014. And then most recently, we hosted the 6th International Ankle Symposium in Dublin, which uh, was in October 2015. We also have a consensus document which outlines the burden of um, ankle uh, sprain and chronic ankle instability and looks at um, areas for future research. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. That was Dr. Raymond Delahunt at University College Dublin. You can see other resources that he's mentioned on the BJSM um, homepage and links that we'll provide with this podcast. And you can generally keep up with sports medicine news via the BJSM app and the BJSM blog. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you get a chance to have an active day. Mm-hmm.